Hello and welcome to Himal Interviews. I'm Shweta Srikanthan and today we're speaking to Devjani Bhattacharya, Associate Professor of History at Drexel University and author of Empire and Ecology in the Bengal Delta, The Making of Calcutta. Devjani's research and work centers on understanding how legal and economic structures shape how we respond to the climate crisis. And she's currently working on her second book, Monsoon Landscapes, Credit, Climate and Calamity. As a part of Himal's special series on Bangladesh, we're here to discuss with Devjani the intersections of environment, colonial urbanization, and legal technologies within the unique ecology between Bangladesh and India, and how the transformation of these temporary landscapes continue to manifest economically, ecologically, and legally. Devjani, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Shweta. It's also a pleasure to be working with Himal. So to begin your book, Empire and Ecology in the Bengal Delta, it documents the various attempts by colonial powers to fortify the temporary landscapes between India and Bangladesh. So as an entry point to our discussion, could you tell us more about how these spaces become part of the legal, governmental, and scientific domain of the empire? Thanks so much for that question, um, Shweta. Uh, so there are three ways we can sort of answer the question. Uh, like there has been a lot of work, actually, substantial amount of work on looking at the agrarian landscapes that are seasonal. As we know, the Ganga Brahmaputra Delta is considered one of the youngest deltas in the world, which means they are constantly forming and reforming and moving. It is also one of the more mobile deltas. So right beginning from, say, Brahmaputra up in, the, um, um, up in Assam, you have these char, char formations or this kind of um, island formations. And, you know, they are all wrapped up in, in, uh, in legal battles. Like today, when we think it depends on how you approach it. Today, when we think of Marjuli in the Brahmaputra, we understand that it is locked up in, in enormous legal battles with ramifications, not just for land ownership, but also for the citizenship debates, for instance. There, ha there was like historians have looked at this uh, even before me and I really drew, drew upon their work and they were primarily looking at the agrarian landscape and uh, going right back to the <clears throat> to when the settlement agrarian settlement happened in the Bengal frontier like if you think in terms of um, you know, Richard Eaton's work going right back up to there what what, what historians have documented uh, is that the agrarian landscapes um, that were these temporary landscapes were also extraordinarily fertile landscapes these are like you know rich sediment rich in mineral so uh, the way of managing this these landscape prior to the coming of the british empire was very much um, based on an idea of yield and so like there were there were there were a set of whole, whole host of laws and the whole host of laws is like if the islands were in existence for 12 years, they entered the revenue rule. And if they were not, they didn't enter the revenue rule. That didn't mean that the, just because the, it was not part of the radar of the state didn't mean that people were not working on it. These were actually speculative landscapes. It's very clear if you look at the historical archive where people would take risks at the time. Like uh, and then the chapuris would actually try to settle those landscapes once the grass would start growing on it. And so, and the British actually took over quite a bit of the existing laws of, um, you know, uh, uh, um, of this 12 years entering the revenue rule. And here the challenge of the historian comes in because if it's not part of the written archive, 
you have to be like you have to start looking where else you might find uh, records about this but what uh, nitin sinhan rohan desuza both of them showed is they were like kind of managed by what's understood as financial buffers like people who were speculators who would actually invest money in having this lands cultivated and they were based on measure based on yield and not on measurement which is a, which is the which is like what def defined um, the difference between a cadastral mapping of settled landscapes versus yield based mapping of these spaces in uh, a in a much more recent article that two years back maybe uh, erika mukherjee has shown and made the argument that the permanent settlement you know the failure of the permanent 1793 permanent settlement should not just be treated as you know transformation of the land ownership it's that but it's also this temporary landscape and the, she's looked at all the embankment fights over these temporary landscapes and said you know they were also trying to settle an impermanent land for me the question was okay it's that's how they are settling agrarian landscape where you can actually have a you know within the larger colonial capitalist machine you have the yield measure to actually manage those landscape what do you do when it comes to urban spaces because dhaka has a very similar history it is surrounded by river kolkata has a similar history and when i entered the colonial archive through you know the existing colonial urban historiography the story is very much the story of you know there were swamps there were uh, there, there were marshes they were drained it was a story of marsh to metropolis and we actually have two books with this title marsh to metropolis so the colonial historiography would say you know it's perseverance they saw these marshy lands they drained it established drainage patterns and there's quite a bit of work and i'm not denying that drainage didn't happen but you know so much of this history is written based on municipal reports and anybody who lives in south asia or has even engaged with matthew hull's work we know there are reports and then we know there is life that bristles outside of the report and there is often a mismatch so i wanted to document this story like okay there are these reports right out there but like sometimes when we look at calcutta it doesn't look very drained like if you are in monsoon it doesn't look very linda and we know what happened in last week in calcutta like half of new town was waterlogged and like there's all these questions going on what what have we done wrong like of course all of us know what we did wrong but and this story so i wanted to ask this question about if it really was drained why is it that during monsoon we stand in like sheets of water and sheets of water is not my term i think if i am if i recall correctly it may be canning's term because canning was really really worried by calcutta turned into a sheet of water every monsoon so something hasn't happened about this marsh to metropolis like which is a like you know as a idea it's an exciting idea to run with in some ways for the colonial officials to talk about their perseverance for the post colonial people to talk about disciplining and post colonial historians to talk about disciplining and space but somehow it didn't happen so i wanted to document that story and also understand what is happening to this kind of temporary landscapes in an urban context and that's where i realized the work of law very much but also the, and how you know within uh, law these lands have like not even within law it's almost administratively administratively these lands have to get fixed for us to then re, you know reclaim the land reclamation is not just going and taking out like trying to fortify a land a lot of paperwork emerges so you know we like the <clears throat> what i charted was how these kinds of temporary landscape i looked at the water bank like harbor uh, disappeared harbor um, at the edge of the sundarbans um to see how these kinds of lands first entered the like uh, the lawyer's desk 
they adjudicate upon it or the mapper's desk. Then they move on to you know, the revenue department, to the um, uh, speculators. So how, how these lands actually move through these various domains. And I wanted to chart that story. Like there's the first set is the lawyers, second set is the engineers, third set are the speculators. And how do we tell a story that actually involves these uh, three kinds of domains? And that in some ways allowed me to also understand what is happening with the wetlands. For instance, that flank, not just Calcutta, if you think about it, wetlands have been like wetlands uh, and mangroves are central to Mumbai's reclamation. You see that in Jakarta, you see that in multiple Asian cities, you know, like, so how do we understand that this reclamation based urbanization became so dominant in, you know, coastal cities and it's Philadelphia story is the same in some ways. Uh, like oh, once I started living here, I realized it is also, uh, you know, also reco recovered from the swamps and I wanted to chart that story. Just to add one thing, currently I'm looking at a lot of maps um, of Kolkata and it is very interesting what I am documenting in these historical maps is a lot of places are you know marked out as pond or tanks tank or talab is the word they are using in the maps uh, and then they then a few years later they are becoming grounds and they just have the name the tank and the talab gets taken away and instead of a blue marking it's a green marking in the map and some of them so you can chart a history of kind of reclamation over there but what's very interesting is some of these maps there, some of these spaces which were marked out as green land in the map are, continues to be tanks in Kolkata. So there is an interesting story to be charted in the bureaucratic regime. And I wanted to see what this uh, disappearing uh, of these kind of spaces in the map means and the power of that in then setting in motion um, kind of movement. And in some ways, I think very exciting work is coming out um, from Bhavani Raman on the Ennore Creek in uh, Chennai, which continues to exist, but you won't find Ennore in the, as a creek in the map. It is a space. So there's an interesting story to be told in that way. Yeah, and um, because this landscape is so unpredictable and humans response, respond to that in certain ways. You could say that this dynamic opens up some of the problems that perhaps lead into uh, the climate crisis today. So what are some connections that can be drawn between the British imperial expansion in the Indian Ocean to the contemporary financialization of climate threats? And kind of how did this history shape how we define climate threats today? Okay, that's a that's a that's a question I'm actually grappling with in my new new work, uh, and um, and I, I I should say it began with what they call the serendipity in the archive. When I was finishing my older project, they gave me a wrong file, and these were files uh, debating uh, you know wreck uh, shipwreck cases in the Bay of Bengal. So one of the things that I'm trying to understand is. Um, you know, if you like, I've been reading a lot on the, and once I began this project, I've been reading a lot of the uh, insurance and reinsurance companies reports on, um, uh, on the Indian Ocean. So from 2005 onwards, uh, post-2005 tsunami, um, the um, Lloyds began doing this risk assessment projects in the Indian Ocean. And one of the arguments uh, that, that has emerged from those debates is the Indian Ocean is one of the most uninsurable areas. Uh, precisely, or the insurance has to be really, really high. And 
demarcating areas un uninsurable in the larger, I'm not talking about minor, these are major, you know, sovereign insurance, reinsurance, uh, like Swiss Re and Munich Re, these are like major companies, major conglomerates uh, involved in this. What happens is when you say that, you actually affect, um, affect a sort of a capital flight vis-a-vis -vis infrastructure, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, goods and everything. So there is that story to be told, like which, which dam will be insured or not. And we know that all of these kinds of major infrastructures that, that's coming up across the Bay of Bengal and the Ganga Brahmaputra Delta, the dams from Salween to, um, to all of the uh, uh, dams that are happening in the headwaters of the Brahmaputra to all the major ports that are coming up uh, along the coast from uh, uh, Sri Lanka, right through India, Bangladesh, the coal plants in the Bangladesh Sundarbans, there's a larger insurance structure involved and how you work. And of course, ADB, like the Asian Development Bank has taken a very, very different approach vis-a-vis -vis Lloyds. But the language of the Lloyds was very interesting. So they say this is uninsurable, but they also say like, if we can come up with a green solution and a financing solution to this problem in the Indian Ocean, we'll have solved the world's problems. Most densely populated area, the poorest live in this area. Most of the things are not titled. So there is like a lack of a paper regime. So the response has to be a really complex response. And you know, they, they do fund a lot of research. Like, so quite a few of these you know, climate research that you see within universities and indeed people who are writing this uh, Lloyd's climate reports are Oxford uh, um, climatologists and meteorologists. So, um, uh, and they, they found like there is, a, uh, the, I believe like um, quite a few uh, Ivy League universities here who do this kind of climate research with a real, in a really like nuanced way, but the money is coming out of these kind of major uh, insurance companies and asset management companies. So I was like, okay, this is a very, very, like, so I was kind of interested. I was like, okay, the, so there is like, you know, we often like to tell the story of, oh, look, big corporations want to do climate denialism. And they do, if we look at BP and Shell and all of that. But once we turn around and start looking at these financial institutes, they are, they are right at the edge of climate research. They want to understand what the dangers are. But then I realized because I took on, put on my historians that it's actually not unknown. Like, you know, like, the Royal Meteorological Society in uh, uh, London is established by the Bank of England and Lloyds. Uh, it's a longer history and like, you know, they do want better data about this. So that's when I started doing digging and uh, I am still in the process of digging, but the puzzles that I have are this. So if you look at <clears throat> the Lloyds archive through the late 18th and the 19th century, much of it's investments are and much of its profits are coming out through this insurance uh, out of the Bay of Bengal. And uh, it's interesting, like, of course, and, and the Caribbeans, these are the two places. It's not the calm waters of the Baltic or the Mediterranean. So that's one thing. This is, and we all know that the huge amount of shipping was moving through the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean waters at this time, like the world's GDP, like world's, like trade is moving through that and economic historians have documented it. But this is also the two of the more turbulent spaces wrapped by tropical cyclones and hurricanes. So once I started digging into this uh, marine coat records, what I saw was emerging is a particular way of assessing and understanding and financializing storms. So in fact, 
the project of how we like the people who did the early research on storms and how do we recognize a storm how do you measure a storm comes very much out of the people who are doing the adjudication of these cases so be it in the caribbean the person who was doing research on hurricanes was also a court lawyer insurance court lawyer and also peddington over here henry peddington who is doing research is also a court lawyer so i want to understand their so they've been understood as scientists in the historical archive but no one has read them as people who are working for these insurance companies that adjudicators of these cases and just to wrap this discussion in fact the fact that we have a uh, you know for hurricanes we have this scale right uh category 1 to category 5 and that scale comes out is known as the shaffer simpson scale and that scale particularly comes out of um, the measurement of a wind's impact on buildings so a civil engineer worked with a meteorologist to come up with that scale so it's a very much a, the scale is comes out of what is the damage caused to a building and the damage that is caused to a building is measured based on the property damage claims that people have made uh, along that so it's a it's a very interesting that the fine financial kind of a, a schema has allowed us to understand the impact of winds which we call cyclone or hurricane what do we want as that and it's very interesting when you look at the historical archive the whole challenge is how do you how do you when you are on a deck in the middle of a ocean recognize a storm as a storm and not as just strong wind and that's where much of these insurance claims are being fought did you recognize that as a cyclone or did you not and why what went into it so it is this more act of the kind of uh, visual training of the eye to recognize and then steer a ship accordingly and then just to wrap up um, in the last one year there's been a lot of pushback from scientists particularly in uh, in the us who are saying who are doing hurricane research it's very interesting saying you know much of our hurricane measurement like you know as we do this 100 year mapping of cyclones and hurricanes it's so much based on impact of these cyclones on human settlements and therefore our maps are all wrong because when a cyclone rages through a place which is empty beetle desert or the prairies we do not have the measurement for that so our a scale is completely wrong so how do we develop a 100 year because it's so based on its impact on a building or a bridge or you know human made infrastructure that we actually have not developed proper scientific measurements for these things so that's that's where i see you know i'm trying to understand what like how much like uh, especially the bay of bengal in some way because when i look at this shipwreck max it's not it would be wrong to say it's indian ocean because most of the ships uh, um, shipwrecks technically happen <clears throat> right on the mouth of you know from chittagong right up to balasore and that is the area and why that happens i still don't have an answer like i'm just collating through the annual maps that they produced of the shipwrecks but that seems to be the most turbulent place and we know like going back to talking about uh, the independence of bangladesh one of the worst cyclones the bhola cyclone of 1970 also happened in that region and if you really zoom in on that that's where exactly like annually you see uh, the highest number of indian ocean wrecks happening that's fascinating uh, thank you and um, we were talking about maps earlier and in your book you write that and i quote um for a tidal landscape like bengal's maps are merely a snapshot in a much longer timeline of sedimentation cartographic techniques fail to depict the temporality that defines land water relations in the bengal delta 
So the colonial administrators tried to fix land in time and space um, to turn it into a resource. And, but at the same time, the kind of fluidity of this landscape itself kind of created more opportunities for profit and accumulation. So mm. could you tell us a bit more about the kind of limits and paradoxes of this cartographic mindedness? A lot of people have already like done a critique of the cartographic mindedness. And, you know, I think of like James Scott's work seeing like a state in some ways and like about uh, legibility, like about homogenization of landscape by, you know, doing cadastral mappings and all that. Uh, but, you know, that fails to answer the question of, you know, like so that it, it feels like, OK, the, um, these kind of um, map making ways of seeing space is, is top down. Uh, it, is, it, it, it is oppressive and all of that. But for me, that failed to answer the question about how these kinds of spaces actually created um, various kinds of opportunities for the state. And, you know, there were two ways, like uh, as I was right, doing the work, there were two ways to go about it. Of course, there's all this new materialist kind of uh, historiography that uh, people talk about, you know, vibrant matter. And people love to say, oh, how nature actually pushed back and it's agential. And you can uh, go down there. I have not, no, I have no problems with it per se. But for me, it was like, okay, like, so if this and any legal historians have also made the argument that some of these uh, island spaces and network places were almost like limits to imperial expansion. You can't make those arguments in the Bengal Delta. Like, th this is where uh, the factory really started thriving and took over half of the Indian subcontinent. So I was like, okay, and this is a very mobile landscape. We forget that, you know, climate change today has given us a kind of a language to understand what's happening in uh, Bangladesh and, you know, the eastern coast of India. But if we go back 40 years later, like if I were to say this is a mobile landscape, it is actually a term no one would even accept. It's like almost like, uh, almost like a kind of a dissonance, that term. So, and I was like, okay, so how do I understand the fact that there was a deep awareness of the mobility of the landscape? James Rennell, who's actually mapping this whole area, He's coming to court and saying, you know, maps do not represent the reality on ground over here. And I was like, what is exactly happening? Because it's not a story of, you know, limiting the East India Company as much as we want to tell the story. It is not. It just chugs on and continues to profit. So, you know, we, what I realized is these spaces actually become um, sites of establishing kind of emergency provisions. And when you look uh, in a way that the government says any land that is formed, uh, newly formed land, uh, becomes sort of company land if it is not attached to anyone's property and if it's not affordable. And affordability is a very interesting category. If you, anyone who's lived along a, a tidal area knows affordability is completely based on the tides. It could be affordable during the morning. It could be, it would be not affordable at, in the afternoon, depending on how the tide tides and when you measure. Do you measure at high tide? Do you measure at low tide? So there is a lot of legal debates on, you know, foreshore, high tide, Low, the high tide mark, the low tide mark, and all of that. And these are very important debates. So, and at the moment, I'm working on the allu, like, you know, what they make it a, like a, um, they take the Bengal alluvian diluvian law that tries to kind of regulate this landscape and make this kind of um, uh, what I call the quasi eminent domain play. And they over and over said, you know, as a company, as, as, as the as East India company, we rule by the double, um, uh, double kind of um, powers of Buddha. Uh, sovereign, which they are drawing from an uh, English sense of rulership and the zamindar over here. So we actually have the 
double right to actually make these claims on the land. But the Bengal alluvian diluvian law then gets, you know, kind of taken up, debated through the 1880s and made into all India kind of law, like an all Indian subcontinent kind of law. And what they say within the empire, there are multiple kinds of spaces. There are arid spaces, there are seasonally dry spaces, there are engineered spaces of the canal colony in uh, Punjab. Uh, there are the coastal spaces on both sides of the ghats. Uh, uh, so he said, how do we kind of um, take the law and take it over? So Bombay presidency goes an interesting direction. They said, you know, all of this reclaimed land is company land because it just opens up too much. Uh, central provinces wanted very different. They were like, oh, we need to train the armies and the patwaris, the people, revenue collectors into mathematics so they can measure how and what happens when new land forms. And the Bengal, if you look at the, uh, the Bengal presidency, they go a completely different way. They actually try to regulate with the 12-year law constantly. And, you know, like what we know today from the lower Bengal Delta between uh, both India and Bangladesh, a lot of these lands are called Barazameen. Bara means B-A-D-A, Bara, like Bengal Alluvian, Diluvian Act. So the act has become the name for these kinds of spaces. So this is what's happening. So what I what I try to look at is how this kind of uh, legal machinations, how, how, how the formation of new land actually created legal machinations. So now what is the effect in the present day? So there's very interesting work coming out, particularly out of Bangladesh. And it's two ways. One is, um, so whenever there is a shift in the river, be it Meghna or the Podda, uh, what you see is often the, chor the Choruas, the people who live in these chores, actually work with the district magistrate. They work with these older pattas and try to move to these new chores and actually sort of lay it out on a, on a stenciled map of the new chore and divide it up, interestingly, uh, to give it back to the old choruas, right? Older older residents in some ways. So that's, that's one way of managing it. There's another way of managing it is every when people are the, the shadow, and you were talking about the profit, there's a shadow economy of dredgers that have also emerged, especially, you know, in the Brahmaputra, uh, in the northern waters, Brahmaputra, in that confluence of Brahmaputra and Meghna, and Podda, is where um, whenever these um, people lose this seasonal landscape, there's, there's an entire economy of uh, dredgers who actually try to dredge up lands for an exorbitant fee so that the people can make land claims and say, I owned that land. The floodwaters had washed it, so I actually can make a new claim on a new, newly formed land. So there is that kind of a, uh, an entire kind of a economy that has emerged out of these mobile landscapes, and that has to be charted uh, in a much more robust manner. And and conversation with you know Indian side, Bangladesh, Assam, all together because this is a kind of a fluid landscape we are dealing with over here. Also, just going back to the book from the various. Bengali folk songs, paintings by indigenous communities, and also almanacs and the theological imaginations of the Delta. What can we learn about the kind of ethical limits of fixing land and water in space uh, in co contrast to the colonial officials and planners, their kind of direct approaches? You know, this is, this is a very, very tricky question in the sense, and I still, I grapple with it a lot when writing because, you know, the urge of the historian, uh, especially the post-colonial historian, I will say, is to kind of romanticize the past, right? Is to say, okay, that there is, you know, there are certain kinds of indigenous knowledges we can learn from. And I, I, I'm not saying we can't learn from that. What I'm saying is, 
there is almost this kind of we can sort of go back out there to the past grab something and kind of mobilize it for the present and and the, fa- the and there, there is also a violence to that act right and wh- why i say it's a violence because this is exactly you know like the glorification of indigenous knowledge has entered un language you know un un will say in, in their sdgs like okay like let's go back and like look at how the indigenous all these communities have their long standing resilience and learn from them but then like so there there is one way of rejecting okay i don't i don't want to romanticize the past uh, let's let's approach this but you know how how do we for me the challenge is how do we read this as neither kind of the enchantment of the past and the violence of the present how do i read this as a kind of a knotted uh, activity and here i drew a lot from uh, of uh, from gautam bhadra's work on almanacs where he's like trying to look at the emergence of you know this kind of a knotted kind of a temporality right how do i actually find these kinds of habitations uh, which kind of look kind of strange to us but remain within the kind of um, this kind of a colonial bureaucracy so i looked at how the colonial officials engage with this uh, one particular hindu deity who actually gets compensation so don't understand how does a rational colonial bureaucracy in the 19th century actually accommodating something like a sacral space and they do actually they constantly do any kind of infrastructure projects try to work around it so it's not like it's out there somewhere but there's another thing that's happening and as i'm reading a lot of um, early texts about monsoons and cyclones um uh, and uh, so if you begin with some of the early islamic uh, hanafi kind of text about um, laws of the sea uh, some of the th- injunctions that are out there are saying to go out to sea during monsoon by a merchant is actually haram and it's blasphemous you do not become a martyr by doing that you actually are ca- committing blasphemy uh i i was recently reading uh, this uh, text called the maharashtra puran it's a 18th century 17th century 17th century no 18th century text and it talks about how in monsoon you cannot be like if 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 you try to invade the bengal area in monsoon you can't be greedy uh you can you can't be greedy and you cannot invade during monsoon so there there so it's almost seems that there are kind of financial ways of dealing with this risks right we can call them ethical limits uh placed on like we can read them as ethical limits but we can also read them as oh financially it's a stupid venture to go out to see during mon- like a monsoon weather or it's a stupid venture to take my elephants into uh dhaka or murshidabad and have them not be able to wade through this needy water or like have like definitely i don't know which animal navigates maybe elephants do uh, horses don't i don't know but they they're talking about this so in a way like there are actually like so there are other ways of reading it and i want to resist the, i like the, i want to think a little more carefully about doing the ethical move and ask are these actually ways of also ensuring are these actually ways of managing risk in the early modern period and what is happening so it's like you know we there is like so they are saying okay it would be actually financially disastrous to go and start reading um bengal at this time so there are those ways of managing what i found interesting uh, during my book looking at some of this is how much the river features as um, as a space of habitation and how silent the colonial archive is about the 
waterways are sites of habitation. And that is the conundrum I tried to work with in the book. I was like, okay, why is it that the river is like, you know, there is no distinction between uh, what land and river. It's always a space of habitation, a space of passing. And if you look at the, you know, the Dehotato uh, traditions of the Bengal area, it is very much, it's a, it's a kind of also philosophical space of passing uh, and uh, coming to your own and markets, uh, rivers are sites of markets, rivers are sites where you make money, rivers are sites where you fight out battles, you interact in a more than human way with the biota. But when you look at the colonial archive, it's rivers are, you have to pilot, it's kind of dangerous. All these people are smuggling rice. It's a very different river that emerges. So I wanted to work with that. I was like, what is it that a certain group of people see the river as and another group of people fail to see the river as. So just to, I hope you, I've answered your question. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for that. And um, you have also recently written about Delta Vision 2050 mm. and how it proposes the development of bilateral alliances between India and Bangladesh in order to address environmental security issues. Now, this project, project could also potentially involve the relocation of populations from vulnerable mm. areas. Mm. So what would a managed retreat in the Sundarbans mean? Yeah, okay, I will try not to get <laughs> angry while talking about the managed retreat. Like, what is very interesting about the Delta Vision language is the language of security. And the language of security is also alerts us to the fact that we look at climate change as a security issue is only when we think of a huge movements of populations of people, right? How do we, how do we manage the population movement of people? And how do we manage the movement of people who are actually the most vulnerable and who are the people who are most vulnerable? People who are the poorest, right? So basically it is a management of poor people's movements is what we're talking about. So that really upsets, like in a way, it's very upsetting when you read the uh, Delta Vision, uh, the language of the Delta Vision. It is very much about protecting the animals it's very much about protecting the forests. And if anybody reads Anujali's work, which will alert you to the forests are products of human labor. Forests are not just, you know, trees and animals, it's human beings in it. And, you know, the, but the Delta Vision completely empties out the forests of humans. So there is, there, there is that sort of, I'm try, still trying to wrap my head around and I'm, I'm working here with Meghna Mehta, uh, who also does, um, who works on the Sundarban. But coming to the question of managed retreat, it's like, let's see where managed retreat functions. So the argument of for managed retreat is instead of letting people move when they think it's, when they feel like it is time to move, the government should do a top-down management of moving people. In the South subcontinent, we have deep experience with this development-induced displacement, right? We can call this climate-induced displacement managed by the government, right? And our experience of development-induced displacement has been, if anything, but horrific if we look at the data that comes from, the, from say, the 40s onwards, but definitely uh, very well from the 60s, 70s. It's, it's, it's been a horrific kind of a tragedy, if you want to use that term. So where has managed retreat been uh, successful? And the case that is often charted is the, what happened after Sandy in New York where it was a demo, like the way that the story will be told, it's a democratic decision by the people who are living in the Staten Islands, where the, 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 the state of New York bought back their lands because their land was, their housing was built in the 70s and the 80s on floodplains. Sandy, um, Hurricane Sandy got sort of 
displaced the population, they were brought back and moved to higher grounds within the state of New York. Now, if we drill down into the details, what we see is we're talking about a primarily white neighborhood, which has often voted for Republican, voted Republican in this country. And that's when that, that's the success story we tell. If we move around and look at the black neighborhoods, that has not happened. They've resisted planned retreat. So, and they are considered truant, they are not being climate, like they do not understand the language, they do not understand climate change. If we go down to New Orleans, where planned retreat has been unsuccessful, it's often the, often the communities who are actually the indigenous communities who are living on the edges, who continue to want to live in that area. So what we are, and, and so we're taking this experience of one particular community of a successful democratically driven uh, planned retreat and trying to impose it uh, within this, like the entire, this Bengal Delta area. Uh, so should people not move? Yeah, they should move. If, they, if, if, if the need arises, they should move and there should be an articulation. And Meghna is actually doing a lot of work where she's trying to show how also within the islanders, there's an entire range of difference. Who are the people who often want to move are people who have maybe are often shopkeepers, are often people who have um, another house somewhere on the outskirts of Kolkata. They are for planned retreat. They are taking an initiative. But there are people who don't want to move. What they want is maybe uh, a little better embankment. What they want is maybe a bunch of uh, lights. What they want is better hospitals. But we don't want to pay attention to that. So and the other argument that, as, a, as we read, read on the Delta Vision document, is very much we have to protect the Sundarbans to protect Calcutta. Of course, the financial center, like of Bengal, right? So, okay, so we are going to ask to sacrifice the lives with the dignity of a bunch of people to protect Calcutta. But how, what if we thought it the other way around? What if we thought to, in order to protect uh, the Sundarbans, maybe we need to do a planned retreat of the Faraka Dam? which has been a thorn between India and Bangladesh, but also has resulted in the in enormous loss of siltation, which could have created new land in this area, right? Like, because it, land doesn't just, uh, like, you know, disappear and dissolve, it also accretes. So we need to allow the natural accretion to co continue through. And there are ways we could do that. So for me, it is very interesting that, uh, and I know that the, uh, the Bengal government is not yet excited about land retreat. And planned retreat is really coming from a group of conservationists. And, and you can see the conservationist thrust in the question of planned retreat. It is very uh, ecology driven, but ecology devoid of humans, right? And it is, uh, it, and, and the language of security we know is often the language of the threat people feel of the movement of unregulated, ungovernment managed movement of people. And the question is, where are we going to move the 5 million people? with dignity, right? So there, there are lots of questions that are there. Like when we, as I say, we always have to be wary of, you know, like be it development-induced displacement or climate-induced displacement managed by the government is the term I will use for the Delta Vision. And um, speaking of these development projects, what were the environmental effects of propertizing and engineering the Bengal Delta? And in what ways do policymakers and local governments in the region continue to exploit the data to further their own developmental agendas? You know, the best person here, like the work, uh, the person whose work I really learned a lot from is Dhruvo Ghosh, uh, 
who was an environmental engineer uh, who did a lot of work in the East Calcutta wetlands. Uh, and Dhrubajuti Ghosh uh, said something very interesting. He, um, he said, um, uh, he looked at the wetlands and said, you know, Devjani, what these are? These are real estate in meeting. And the question is, why is it that when we see, you know, like thin sheets of water or land slightly submerged in water, we think in terms of wasteland, we think in terms of unused space, we think in terms of housing, right? Possible housing. And when I teach my class, I often show them this image of, um, of a sheet of water and a telephone line standing. And I say, what do you guys see? They all see a road. They all see a road, they will see a flooded road. They know, don't see just water. And that is very interesting. It is part of our visual literacy, right? When we see infrastructure, we think about how do we, we see a road, we see something productive. And for us, a sheet of water is unproductive. And there's a longer history to this. So, I, I, and I wanted to understand why is it that while we understand the wetlands as Bhujati uh, Ghosh's work had shown, uh, what he calls the kidneys of Calcutta, because in a way, Calcutta doesn't have a ma major sewage treatment plant, right? It's one of the few like densely populated cities that can use these Kolkata wetlands to actually treat its sewage in a very environmentally friendly manner. And it supports the livelihood, enormous amounts of fishes and aquaculturalists and pisciculturalists there. Yet we are constantly building. Our airport stands on a wetland. Half of Newtown stands on a wetland. And of course, today we are, today we are asking what is going on. Uh, why is this high-priced real estate becoming dysfunctional for two weeks on an end when we get a little bit of water? And it's very interesting that the whole debate forms on the Bagjola Canal, uh, one of the canals there, and say, oh, people have created, like, you know, they're looking at these small shacks, the tea shacks and, uh, you know, the, um, the ironing man's shack and saying, oh, this is the problem that's clogging up the canal. If this canal was unclogged and dredged, we would solve the problem. Because the idea is we will not stop building on the wetlands. We will continue to build, but let's remove some of the uh, like informal settlements that opened up because you know all these gated communities need these informal settlements to keep their service uh, running. Uh, but so I wanted to go back and it really took me back to the early 20th century to the early rent debates uh, that are happening in Bombay, Calcutta and Rangoon and they are all talking to one another and what emerges from these rent debates is who is a good land developer? And a good land developer, and they're saying, you know, Bombay is locked by the sea, Rangoon and Calcutta are locked by the rivers and the wetlands. So what do we do? So the good developer is one who drains the swamp and builds housing. And that became, you know, so we sort of, whenever we saw, and because the housing pressure is huge in these cities, no, no doubt about that, right? And we are going to continue to urbanize in a radical manner over the next 50 years, next half a century. Of course, the housing demand would be high. But why did we come to imagine, like, uh, not look at these wetlands as also like kind of living infrastructures that support the city as vital kind of public utility services that support livelihood of a bunch of people? But we only looked at them to quote again Ruvajuti Ghosh, real estate in waiting. And I think that is the consequence. And we think we are going to continue to pump down cement and concrete and protect ourselves from climate change and all the threats. And I think that is at this we are we are. When I finished the book, it was still not uh, like accepted um, common sense. But I think today it is slowly becoming accepted common sense. Like we are not going to get out of this problem by concretizing life and livelihoods. So like hopefully we will get to a point that we won't be doing that.
And just to kind of follow up on that, what are some of the visible impacts of on these landscapes after the use of these environments as sites of profit making? Oh, that's a that's a present crisis that we are facing, right? Like, um, that's a good question. You know, like what are the effects? Like, it's a whole whole host of things. First of all, in some ways, if we look at uh, what's happened to like a place like Calcutta or Bombay. So currently we are building this coastal road in Bombay, right? At the cost of taking over the mangrove lands, right? We are developing and establishing all these uh, part of the BRI initiative. You, we have the port uh, in, 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 in Sri Lanka, which is coming at the cost of uh, livelihoods, fishers' um, ability to go to, show, go to, go to, go to coast. Uh, we also have huge fights about coastal landscapes and SEZification, like the SEZs that are emerging in, for instance, in Chennai, now in Holdia, because, you know, these are kind of landscapes that have to be put to use uh, and cannot be left. But sometimes you have to also leave the landscape, right? And there, there are multiple debates of why, like, I don't want to, like, when I say leave the landscape, I don't want it to go to the room for river kind of a space which the um, Dutch and people are doing, because that also comes with its own host of problems. But I think like the, there is a history that has to be charted to the current crisis. And today we are going to, again, spend a lot of money trying to take care of flooding and everything. Uh, whereas there were other ways we could have addressed it and we can, can continue to still address these questions about how do we build, where do we build, uh, what sort of livelihoods we support and what sort of livelihoods perhaps is untenable in this moment. So, yeah, I hope I've answered that question. Yeah, and um, just to kind of wrap up and to conclude, what are some key lessons that can be applied to the contemporary moment in Bangladesh where states and various organizations continue this process of propertizing and, like you said, pushing out water and looking for short-term fixes by unsettling these landscapes and the people living there? So um, this is interesting, you know, there, there are a lot of things Bangladesh, I feel, is also doing right uh, in some ways. You know, there are smaller projects where um, they are actually building, they are working with embankments, but they are building these natural embankments where fish can pass through, for instance, and they are made of bamboo, weeds and stuff. And that is working because what natural embankments do, unlike the major wall that maybe uh, the uh, embankment that is being proposed perhaps in the Sundarban, Indian Sundarban area is it allows the people who are living there to actually take care of the embankments when it breaks. Of course, Bangladesh also has its polders that were built through the 1950s. So they learned the lesson of the problems with this state of the art uh, World Bank funded polders. What that happens is once a polder breaks, the villagers cannot immediately repair it. They have to wait for the uh, the irrigation departments or the public works department to send in their um, heavy earth machineries to come and do the work. So it takes like so the it it takes the responsibility away from the villages. But there are parts of Bangladesh where are, where they are exper experimenting. I think of Sheikh Rokon's work who does who does a good job of documenting it. But Kasha Poproki also you know like she looked at this one uh, this organization the Nijerakori uh, NGO who is actually trying to do it in a like um, do it. Um, manage one of the folders on their own uh, and getting support. And I think there's lots for India to learn if it can with humility from Bangladesh about 
the kind of management that is going on. But at the same time, uh, Bangladesh is also putting a coal plant in the Sundarbans and that will have a devastating effect. And it's very interesting that we have the planned retreat Delta Vision project, but that will now not even talk about the coal plant, which will have far more um, fatal consequences for the mangroves than a bunch of people living in there. For me, what's also very, very interesting uh, is to also chart what's happening in the Bhashan Chow. And that's an interesting story which we have to kind of understand because it is again, one of these temporary landscapes, but it is where also the uh, UN along with Bangladesh is relocating the Rohingya population, right? And building, uh, building, um, uh, building uh, camps for them to live. And here, uh, Lindsay Bremner's work is very instructive because she's saying if all our asylum claims and citizenship claims come out of being on a solid ground, because it's used solely the law of the soil, uh, what does it mean to then relocate this population in the middle of the Bay of Bengal, uh, where the, the soil is actually dissolving into the bay as we speak. So where the soil itself is untenable, where it is a chore that has been in existence 13 to 14 years, it's like just about gotten into the revenue rolls. And it is a, like Bhashan, it is a floating island we are talking about. So it, it is very interesting. So at what point it moves out of the uh, Bangladesh territorial waters, what happens then if it continues to like move around? So it, there is an interesting kind of a humanitarian experiment now playing out in the Bhashan, which could be interesting for international law people, for people who think about um, environmental um, historians and ecologists and people who work on the refuge to see how this story is playing out uh, in the Bay of Bengal context, I think. Devani, thank you so much for joining us today and this opportunity to engage with kind of larger questions in both historical and contemporary contexts um, on how colonial legal systems and urbanization continues to reshape these ecologies. And in your book, you kind of eloquently conclude that we easily forget. And because we forget, it's harder for us to imagine alternatives. And I think that perfectly kind of reiterates the importance of tracing these environmental imaginations and histories to kind of better understand contemporary entanglements with the Bengal Delta and all that we have discussed today. So thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Shweta. It was really, really lovely to sit and talk about these things with you. And thanks for all your fascinating questions and engaging with my work. Thank you.